I don't think there's a world 10 years from now where the, the current giants, whether it's Apple, Microsoft, Facebook, Samsung, I don't think there's a world where, where space isn't a significant part of their business. If they're not investing in it now at a significant level, they're going to be the, the Hewlett Packers or the IBMs or the decks of the world that really are no longer relevant. At one point, were the kings of commerce. Hi, and welcome to GeekWire. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. And I'm GeekWire co-founder John Cook. We're coming to you from Seattle, where we get to report each day on what's happening around us in technology, science, and innovation. What happens here matters everywhere. And every week on this show, we talk about some of the biggest and most interesting stories in the news. This week, a new Microsoft leader finally gets to work. Amazon makes a surprising change in its remote work policy. And the final frontier awaits. I'm so filled with emotion about what just happened. I I just, it's extraordinary. Now that Jeff Bezos has sent Captain Kirk into space, we'll talk about the prospects for tech companies in orbit and beyond. Our guest commentator this week is Charlie Kindle, who worked for many years as a Microsoft general manager in areas including its server and mobile businesses, before jumping into the world of startups and then ending up at Amazon, where he led mobile payments and built the Alexa smart home organization. After working as chief product and technology officer at home automation company SnapOne, previously known as Control4, He's now an independent advisor and consultant to companies including space and satellite startups. Charlie, it's great to have you here. It's great to be here. I'm getting to be able to talk to you guys. I'm such fans of both of you and have been for so long and everything you've done for the Seattle tech community. So um, it's awesome to reconnect and have, have the time. Likewise, Charlie, it's great. We've had a great time covering your career over the years, and you've got such a fascinating perspective, especially considering your time at Microsoft and then your time at Amazon. And I wanted to start there because there's a couple of really interesting stories in the news this past week. First, Charlie Bell, the former Amazon Web Services executive, finally got clearance to start working at Microsoft in his new role after reaching an agreement with Amazon on his non-disclosure agreement to lead this big new security operation that Microsoft is going to be putting into place what would it be like for somebody like Charlie Bell, who worked at Amazon for more than 24 years, to suddenly find himself leading thousands and thousands of people at Microsoft? Can you give us a perspective on the two cultures as evidenced by this kind of transition that Charlie Bell's about to make? My reaction when you ask the question the way you ask it is, you know, if he had done this 10 years ago, my answer would be completely different because it would be there's no way he would he would be happy there's no way he could he would feel like he could have the ability to impact microsoft's culture in a positive way uh relative to the way amazon is run but the reality is is microsoft has changed a lot in that time frame and sacha has brought a, a new a new way of thinking and a tempering of kind of some of the, the the more negative things about the way Microsoft operates and a reinforcement of a lot of the positives. So I actually think that he's going to find an environment where there's going to be a lot of appetite for the leadership that he's really familiar with. Uh, you know, whether it's being a very principled leader and really focus on the how you do things in a, in a more structured way, or, uh, you know, his experience in building, you know, 
the biggest, most capable cloud services on the planet. And, you know, Charlie's really known as being one of the, the best leaders around operational excellence of anyone. Uh, I know when I was at Amazon, I learned a massive amount um, from him, both directly and indirectly on how to, you know, run and operate large scale cloud services. And I got to, I got to imagine that Microsoft is giddy to have him. Um, and he's excited to go there. I've, I haven't talked to him and I got to imagine there's some disappointment on Amazon's side that he's, uh, he's not going to be at Amazon. For you, what was the biggest challenge or cultural difference between the two when you made the transition from Microsoft to Amazon? When you, when you work at Amazon, there's a structure that underlies how the company is run. Um, it's a fabric that's very consistent across most of the company. Um, and it's based around, uh, the leadership principles, the, you know, there's now 15 of them and everyone's, everyone's now very familiar with them, but those leadership principles, they are not lip service. Um, they're not just wall art, the culture of how people are hired and how uh, people are reviewed and how projects are executed and ideas are formulated. They all every day try to embody those leadership principles. And so you could say Amazon has always been a principled company. I didn't know this by the way, before I went there, but I just certainly discovered it. And at the time, you know, and again, I left Microsoft in 2011. And so I have to couch this with a little bit of a little bit old news, but at the time I would say Microsoft had no principles. There certainly were leaders at Microsoft that were principled leaders and had their own sets of principles, but they all had different principles and they, they weren't consistent and it wasn't a fabric that underlied the entire company. Um, and so the biggest difference is Amazon is a principled company through and through and Microsoft is learning how to be a principled company. Yeah, My guess is that if you were to point to one overriding principle at Microsoft, whereas at Amazon, it would be focus on the customer. Microsoft seems to be all about the growth mindset under Satya Nadella. In other words, continuous learning, trying to get better and better every day. Am I on the right track in terms of what you'd put your finger on in terms of Microsoft's overriding principle? Yeah, based on all my friends and people that I that I meet with who are still at Microsoft, I mentor and coach a bunch of people. I think that resonates. I would try and translate it into Amazon's leadership principles. And I think that, that there's a focus at Microsoft right now on um, on think big, on definitely on customer obsession, and on uh, learn and be curious, um, which is the one you talked about in terms of constant learning. And I think the one that was probably sorely missing um, in my era was the concept of earn trust, um, which is really about how do you how do you operate in such a way where it's not self serving, it's not empire building, it's uh, it, uh, it, it is about everyone trying to do the right thing for the customer in a way that it that earns trust with others. And I think that's the thing that I see the most about the, the newer Microsoft culture is there seems to be a lot less of the, that you remember that famous uh, drawing of that XKCD did of different companies and at Microsoft, you know, each organization had guns pointing at the other organizations. By the way, that thing, that, you know, the truth hurts. And at the time when that came out, it hurt. Uh, but I don't think it's actually is true anymore. Yeah, it's interesting. Todd and I talked about this off the podcast, I think, a couple of weeks ago, especially when we were preparing for Andy Jassy to appear at the GeekWire Summit earlier this month and talking about the difference in leadership at Amazon compared to Microsoft. And I'd love to get your perspective on this because it seems like Andy Jassy's coming in and it's just, as you said, that fabric, and he's been there 20 plus years as well, that fabric's just part of him. He doesn't even really, he stays very true to those principles and that message. And 
in the case of Microsoft with Satya Nadella, it's like it was an complete blow up of everything. It was a new leader coming in and changing the direction in a big way. I guess from a leadership standpoint, what's harder or easier to do? Like, because you are the CEO of the company now, is it better to say, hey, I'm putting my stamp on the company and we're going here and this is our new direction? Or in the case of Andy Jassy, it's like, we're just keeping the train running on the tracks and we're not going to veer off. I mean, which, which one's kind of a harder thing to do? I think the degree of difficulty is harder for Sacha. Uh, you know, I think the degree of difficulty of any job like that is really high. Let me be clear about that. It's not even a battleship. It's an entire fleet, right? And and turning it is a mammoth undertaking. And he's not done yet. Like I, 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 I still have conversations with people that I know at Microsoft that talk about some of the same old behaviors and stuff that we struggled with. Where people, I'll give you an example. I, I found after being at Amazon for four or five years that most of the things that I was able to accomplish, I did with the help of the company. I felt like I was swimming downstream. And in retrospect, a lot of the stuff that I pulled off at Microsoft, my memories of it are one of me working against the system. Hmm. I accomplished a lot of things in spite of Microsoft. And I, I still hear a little bit of that from people. Uh, I also, by the way, I, as Amazon has grown, I also hear it from Amazon. I mean, there's, there, there, there's, it's clear that Amazon has parts of that company that are moving excruciatingly slow um, relative to where they should be and that there are organizations that are not as well run because these are giant companies now and it's, 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 it's not homogenous. So I, and I just, so I don't mean to come across at all as, as negative one way or the other. Cause by the way, I actually think it's just fantastic that we happen to live in an area where all this is happening and uh, it's great for customers. It's great for the world. Um, and, it's great for us uh, at GeekWire because we have a lot of stories to cover and interesting right. companies to, to, to track. Yeah. Uh, that surprises me a little bit, Charlie, on that, on that thought you just said that you felt you had a lot of support from the company at Amazon to get where you needed to go. Because my impression has always been that Amazon is kind of, it's very entrepreneurial and you kind of achieve what you're going to achieve as an entrepreneur would going out and doing it kind of on your own without a lot of the infrastructure behind it. And so I'm, I'm, I just wanted to push back a little bit on that because it runs a little bit counter to, to my own impression. Well, I can only really talk about my own my own story and my own experiences, and I can give you uh, two examples, uh, one from each company. Um, I'll start with the Microsoft one first. When I built um, the Windows Home Server product and organization, it, it was me that started it off. It was my idea. I spent I, the, the code the project was codenamed Quattro because it was my fourth attempt at Microsoft to try and make it happen, um, and. Once I got momentum and we were building the product and I, I, I was able to you know, get the headcount and hire the team, um, I had to spend a lot of my resources and time making sure that what I thought was the target on the back of my back as small as possible. I had to hide what I was doing and avoid um, a lot of publicity inside. Part of it was bad politics, but part of it was also because the law of very large numbers. You could take the, the roughly 50 people that I had and apply them to office and make gobs more money than my product was ever going to make. So, uh, and Microsoft definitely has has had a uh, an issue with the law of very big numbers for longer. Um, so at Amazon, I get into Amazon and my first role there was, was working on a payment system, a, a wallet product similar to Apple Pay uh, relative. And it was, we were part of the effort for Firephone. And I had the same sort of opportunity where I had, there was no team. It was just me and a couple other people. And we wrote our working backwards document with our strategy and our plan. 
And my, my manager, my boss told me to go and, and get the document reviewed by several other people around the company. And I went into those meetings initially thinking I was doing what I used to have to do at Microsoft, which was kiss the ring. I'd walk into the, the, the thing and do a PowerPoint presentation with, you know, some senior vice president or executive. And it really was, I was, it felt like I was just kissing the ring. I had to do it because I needed to get their approval. At Amazon, it turned out I walk in these rooms and these people are genuinely interested in helping and giving me feedback on the document and, and how I wrote it and what it said and the idea and what they knew. And, oh, and by the way, Jeff doesn't think about things this way. He thinks about them this way. So you might want to rephrase it this way. And it was genuinely seeking to help. Um, and it was striking to me. And so I think that's an example of, of the difference there. It's not that you can't be entrepreneurial at, at Microsoft. And it's not that small things can't grow into really big things. It's just that that wiring of, of Amazon, particularly the, the earns trust uh, leadership principle, kind of leads to an environment where uh, people want to help. Keep in mind, of course, as you said earlier, Charlie, we're not just comparing companies here. We're comparing an earlier era of Microsoft with the subsequent era of Amazon as you experienced each of them. Plus one. And, 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 you know, Amazon has changed since then as well. Like I, I, I left Amazon cause I was burned out. Uh, it is an intense place to be. And I happened to be in a, a, a part of the company that was the, the phrase is close to the sun with Jeff being the sun and, and Alexa and echo, we were very close to the sun. And so it was extraordinarily intense and that it burned me out. Um, and, but across the board at Amazon, it is a more intense place to work. You can't go into Amazon and hide. There's nowhere to hide. There's no way a leader can come in and have a cush job. It just doesn't support it. But that is that has changed. And I talk to, to to people all the time now who say, "Yeah, intentionally the co- the company is backed off of that a little bit, and it's a it's a little less intense, which I think is great." So, Charlie, you and I actually talked about this a couple of weeks ago after it first emerged that Charlie Bell was going from Amazon to Microsoft. There have been, over the years, many executives who've gone from Microsoft to Amazon, and you're one of the examples of that. But it's been much more rare, it seems, for executives to go from Amazon to Microsoft. And here you have a really high-profile example. And, of course, one does not make a trend. But I'm curious if you could read anything into this about the relative status of the two companies that an executive of the stature of Charlie Bell would make this kind of move. Does it signal perhaps that Microsoft is being held in higher esteem by some of these types of leaders? Direct answer to the last part of your question. Yeah, I absolutely believe that Microsoft is held in um, in a higher esteem. You know, when I left in 2011, you know, the the whether it was in the mobile game where I was focused on or cloud, Microsoft was a joke. Right. Uh, the reality is Microsoft's been printing money like crazy forever, very successful. But the, the impression that uh, people have was was that, you know, why would you want to work at Microsoft? Oh, my gosh. Right. Uh, that has absolutely changed. Microsoft has hit all the right notes in the last decade in terms of changing that impression. You know, the the, the dev tools, the the you know, Azure still, you know, got a long ways to go. But Office is incredible cross platform. Etc. And and so I think that that there's less negative stigma to some degree. So so I think that's part of it. Um, I also think like I actually view this as just a really positive thing. It, it's like any organization you want to have diversity and change of thought. And so this crossbreeding or whatever you want to call it, I think is is uh, it's going to be good for customers and businesses. 
Coming up next, Amazon's surprise twist for remote workers. Technology moves fast. I need to move faster. WGU's competency-based education puts me in control of how fast I move through my IT degree program. I can accelerate my program by applying what I already know to my courses and focusing on the things I need to learn. Earn a respected accredited degree that propels your career in the IT field. Learn more at wgu.edu backslash IT certs included. Charlie, there's another story that happened this past week that I'd love to get your perspective on because, again, John and I were kind of wondering about this. And that is the news that Amazon will be essentially delegating to the company's directors, the team leaders, not the board of directors, but the the people at the director level uh, inside the company, the decisions about who will work from home, what their teams will do in terms of being in the office, working together, how far away from the office they can be effectively. That was really interesting to me because in the past, Amazon tried to set blanket policies for this. I'd really be interested in your perspective on this in terms of that sort of delegation that they're doing now with this work from home policy. Is that the Amazon that you knew when you worked there? Yeah. I mean, when I was, you know, running a fairly large organization in the company I was most recently in Utah when COVID went down, you know, we struggled this whole thing too, right? How to, how to uh, deal with the fact it was really obvious there was a whole set of employees that were working just fine at home and a bunch of leaders who had always said, no way can I manage real remote teams. They have to be local. Suddenly they had to learn the skills. Um, and then a bunch of other people who like, oh, no, you don't want this person working from home. Uh, they need more supervision. Um, and so I try and extrapolate that out to the scale of Amazon. And yeah, I was surprised by the initial outtake that there would be like one size fits all. Um, it doesn't surprise me at all that they backed off from that. And they're, they're kind of embracing the idea that, uh, they've hired all these great leaders that have a bunch of autonomy. Well, why not let them figure it out? I think it's much more powerful. What do you think that's going to do to downtown Seattle office space? Because it seems like it's <laughs> just going to blow up this model that they've constructed around how they were going to operate as a headquarters. I have, I have no idea. I was downtown the other day for the first time in quite a while. And um, actually, a bunch of the buildings I hadn't seen <laughs> Because I've been in Utah, they're all empty and they're all ginormous. They're all beautiful. I don't know, and they and they were not designed primarily to support you know hoteling and remote working. So Charlie, let me ask you: if you were a director at Amazon today, for the, maybe the group you were overseeing, how would you have managed your team? Would you have them in the office? Would you be hybrid? Would you be all remote? What would be your management style right now for? Parts of the organization that were working on earlier stage efforts, um, I would be biased towards having people together a lot more frequently and in the same, literally in the same room as much as I could. For parts of the organization that were more mature and stable, I'd be less, I'd be less uh, inclined to push hard for that because it is at those, in those early stage things where the value of getting together face to face is the most it's, it has the highest impact and where you, and you lose a lot if you're not unable to meet with people in real life. And I would have all of the managers in my organization as part of people calibration, identify those who have demonstrated they clearly have the maturity level to deal, do it effectively. And also then work on training and other things for the ones who can't demonstrate it 
to uh, to get better at it. And I'd probably work on a program of having those people, maybe they need to go somewhere else if the, if it's not something they can do. Because I think I would be biased to, to having a more broadly distributed organization. Right. So at the early, earlier stages, it sounds like in person, does that translate to maybe the startup companies that you're working with as well? Do you think that is also um, the way that startups get built or at least uh, can get built into much larger companies with the teams working more closely together? Because you do see a lot of companies now that are in the startup phase that are going remote first in a big way. They are, but they're also uh, investing more and more in, in trying to get together as much as they can. I actually don't think I would want to start a startup right now and and not be able to have a way where I could have my team get together uh, frequently in real life because the tools are not good enough yet. Like maybe someone's going to come along with some some tool for video teleconferencing and, and telepresence that you know really works for the whiteboard scenario. Um, you know, being doing a structured brainstorming. There's nothing like being in a room. Um, and there's nothing like the hallway conversations that happen. And those things just don't exist anymore if you're just purely video teleconference. The startups that I'm working with, since they're all mostly in the space industry, um, there's a lot of hardware involved. And uh, that just absolutely requires physical presence. Um, you know, you can't you can't have a test site for our rocket engines in Moses Lake, Washington, um, and not have people there. <laughs> Before we talk more about space, Charlie, I do want to mention one other thing that made me think of you this week. I've been listening recently to the Decoder podcast by Neil Patel, the Verge executive editor, and he had Dave Limp, the head of Amazon's Alexa and devices and services business on. And the main thrust was their latest products. But in making a point, one of the things that Dave Limp said was when they first shipped Echo, they did not envision smart home applications nope. being part of that. And mm-hmm. this is something that you ended up running. Mm-hmm. Is that true? That they didn't yeah. envision? How yeah, is that well, possible? I, I think all right, so I don't I, I don't think it's fair to say it wasn't envisioned because okay. there's not a there's not a you know a technologist on the planet that's been working around technology that hasn't thought about how smart home could work with voice. I mean, we were doing voice stuff with smart home, you know, back in the, in the late nineties. Um, and and when I was at Microsoft, so, um, uh, but what happened was that the core experiences that were part of echo and Alexa at launch echo and Alexa at launch were, uh, didn't include smart home and, and there wasn't a smart home team. There wasn't anyone thinking about it. And what happened is a couple of really smart engineers, um, uh, built a prototype. And demoed it and got, and everyone's just like, oh my gosh. And that was just about the time I actually joined Alexa. The, the prototype was actually in flight when I first joined. And then it, then it, it grew from there and it became, so it was pretty obvious that it was going to be really, really compelling quickly. What's the, the most crazy smart home application that you have in your house right now? Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's probably the, the, it's actually kind of silly, but it's probably the air compressor in my workshop. In, in what way is that smart home enabled? It, it's only on when I'm using the workshop and it, and so it doesn't make a lot of noise and doesn't use power. Um, and, and it's dorky and very simple, but here's the thing. We're still at a point where there are not very many sophisticated smart home scenarios in the real world. The vast majority of what people call smart home are the, are the brain dead simple things like turn off the kitchen lights or, or turn off all the lights in the house. And I actually, I'll use that as an example in my house. When I say turn off the lights, 
every light in the house is off. There's no closet with lights still on in it. And that's because I have a fully wired, complete smart home. And, uh, and we are a long ways from normal people who aren't insane like I am um, having that type of experience still. Are, are you Alexa only or have you started using Google Home and other? Yeah, I use it all. Um, and, and when I was at the last company, I was at Control 4, which is now called Snap One. Um, we supported all of the voice assistants. And so I had to use them all. Um, yeah. So. What's the biggest glitch you've had in the smart home where those <laughs> systems have not communicated well together? In my house, the way this house currently is set up, very rarely, um, because this house was when we redid it three years ago um, and had it all professionally done. Um, you guys can probably see this closet, that blue light behind me. That's actually my equipment room. And this house was built in 2002 when I, I, we built it when I was still at Microsoft and I was doing smart home stuff then. And I did it all myself. Like it was all this infrastructure in the house was, you know, I pulled the wire and it was all my programming, blah, blah, blah. Three years ago when, when I went to control four, we ripped all of that out and I had it professionally done. Mm -hmm. um, and now it's, and I can't, I'm not even allowed to like reprogram it myself. My wife won't let me. And, um, and so it all works because it was done right by, by true professionals. That's gotta be rough. Yeah. Well, it's also gotta be expensive, <laughs> right? Uh, even with the fact that smart home now is is uh, widely adopted, it is much more broadly adopted than it was prior to Echo and Alexa uh, making it real. It still is for most people a toy. Yeah. It is. It, it's accessories. It's things that are on the side. There's very, very few people on the planet that have fully integrated smart homes. Next up, the final frontier for investors and startups. That's after this break. This GeekWire podcast is sponsored in part by Yale University Press. Are you concerned about the rise of AI and how it will impact our society? Every day, artificial intelligence presents us with urgent ethical challenges. How do we harness this extraordinary technology to empower rather than oppress? Nigel Shadbolt and Roger Hampson have written a how-to for building ethical machine intelligence. Their new book, As If Human, Ethics and Artificial Intelligence, is now available wherever books are sold. Well, let's talk about what you've been up to, Charlie. You've gotten into space, commercial space, not, not real estate, but, but outer space. Tell us how you got from what you were doing in smart home technologies to what you're doing today and, and what are you doing today? It's actually a recurring theme to me. I keep trying to run away from home technology. I, you know, I, when I, I, I think you guys wrote an article about when I went to Amazon and there was speculation that I was going to go work on either smart home or phone. Um, and I wasn't. I was going to work on payments. I wanted to get away from it. Um, and so <laughs> I, when I my, just looked up that story, Charlie, and the headline yeah. was, no joke, Charlie Kindle arrives at Amazon because we were playing off the Kindle and it was April right, Fool's. So. Right, right, right. We should point out it is D-E-L, not D-L-E. But anyway, that keep going, Charlie. Right. So uh, last fall, last November, when I when the last gig ended, I, I decided I wanted to do something very different. I kind of created a list of the things that I've always been passionate around and the automotive industry and aerospace. And um, it was a no-brainer what I learned about what's going on um, with humanity and our ability to get off this planet in different ways. And so I just said, I'm going to dive in. I'm going to go figure out how I can uh, uh, make my next chapter or my next mission um, to help that. How can that be my mission? So Charlie, let me interrupt. What year will we see a smart home on Mars? 
Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> on Mars? Oh, it's just start with the moon. So there's no, well, I, but, you I know, just want to bring it back to the smart home for you. Well, but the interesting <laughs> thing is, is that, that the, one of the places where, where you tend to see better smart home capabilities is when it's built in from the get-go. You know, like the, the Aria Hotel in Las Vegas is powered by Control 4, every one of those rooms. And the reason it works so well is that when they built the hotel, it was hand-in-hand with Control 4. And so when they put habitats on Mars, they're going to be wired from the get-go because, well, they just are. And so it's actually going to be more natural. And one of the challenges is all retrofitting, right? Well, tell us what you're working on in the space industry specifically. Yeah, so I've, um, I have my, my sights set on finding another big role where I can, I can be part of an, an organization uh, and really driving some big uh, audacious part of whatever that, that company is doing relative to space. But to get there, I got to build some credibility. I've got to, uh, you know, it is the largest domain, right? like quite literally the largest domain, the final frontier. I have so much to learn. And so what I've been doing to get to that is uh, just jumping into smaller, earlier stage space companies and offering to help Um, uh, whether it's software, whether it's organizational dynamics or design executive coaching. And so I now have seven (laughs) uh, changes day to day, seven early stage space startups that I am uh, officially advising where I spent enough time with them. They saw some value and they've given me a little bit of equity and said, yeah, we'd like you to be officially an advisor. And they range from companies that are doing end to end uh, space launch systems, um, a la SpaceX. For example, there's one that's local. It's called Stoke Space. It's a Kent company doing really amazing things. Extremely well-run company. Uh, I have a, a couple companies in New Zealand. New Zealand's hot for space right now. Um, one of those companies actually co-located in the Netherlands, which also, by the way, there's a bunch of space stuff going on in the Netherlands. Uh, a Los Angeles company that is focused on software-defined radios um, and, uh, and, and using AI and ML to automate the dynamic programming and software-defined radios because it turns out that spectrum management is a really challenging problem uh, for uh, Earth-to-satellite, satellite-to-satellite communications. Another one is a Colorado company called Ursa Major that is a, basically they make rocket engines of, of, of various forms. Uh, and so it's examples like that. And I'm, I'm actually sort of intentionally trying to make it as broad as I can so I can kind of dip my toe in a lot of the, uh, the different aspects of it and learn as I try and add some value. I know Stoke Space traces its lineage back to Blue Origin. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you seeing an ecosystem, kind of a startup ecosystem develop around some of the larger space companies that have rooted in Seattle, like Boeing, Blue Origin are, are good examples. Yeah, you added in Seattle to the end of that. And I was going to say absolutely yes until you said that. I don't have as much awareness of other other space companies in Seattle. There certainly are never a number of them. But definitely you see um, Blue Origin, SpaceX, uh, et cetera, uh, veterans starting these companies or being being major players in these companies because they have the experience and they have the idea. And they also see how the old school aerospace companies are not running a way that is going to be competitive long-term. And a lot of the innovation that, they, that, that they're driving, um, some of it is the what, what's being invented, but a lot of it is the how. How do we move faster? How do we lower costs? And it is super dynamic and there's a lot of money being poured in, a lot of investment. There is a lot of money, and that's a good segue because I was just going to ask you, is this a good venture bet? Because it seems like a real 
long-term prospect to get results. I mean, we've seen companies like Planetary Resources here in the Seattle area that raise a lot of money, and then they were planning to do asteroid mining, and I don't think they ever got close to doing any asteroid mining. So from a venture capital perspective, which like to have short-term wins, it seems like this is a real far-off uh, bet to place. It, I think it is. I think you're right. I, I don't think it's as far off as, as a lot of people think, but it definitely is longer timeframes. And I think a lot of traditional, uh, uh, you know, IT, um, traditional computer industry focused VCs uh, or tech, tech VCs have focus, have, uh, are used to, uh, but it's still happening. Um, and, uh, and things are happening faster and faster. And that's one of the, the really interesting dynamics of it. I had an epiphany last spring as I was diving into this, as I was really, I was writing a document to try and describe it all and, and get clarity of thought. And I was, I was looking at the behaviors of the VCs, of the you know, entrepreneurs, of the customers, um, the, the tr- traditional players in the aerospace industry. And I got this real sense that it felt a lot like the world felt back in 94, 95, when we were all walking around saying, you know, this internet thing is going to be really big someday. And a flywheel started to turn of um, of new scenarios coming out, of more investment going in, new invention, and so I think I do actually believe we're at, we're at the beginning stages of a real acceleration of space exploration for humanity that is driven by commercial enterprise, not public. Why is this important? I think a lot of people would ask. There's a lot of problems that we need to solve on Earth. Um, yeah, and. I think a lot of people look at the investment in space and the billionaires that are pouring a lot of money into it. And, and, and the perception is it's, it's a frivolous endeavor and it's not worth the investment or time when there are other issues to try to solve. So convince those people why you think this is an, an important area for people to invest in and to spend their entrepreneurial energy on. Well, the first thing I'll say about that is a lot of the the benefits that we are already seeing from investment in space directly correlate to helping earth and helping problems on the planet. Our ability to understand what's happening to the, to the ecology of the planet. um, We only have that ability because we have satellites in space. Uh, If you talk about resources and the, 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 uh, the limited resources we have on this chunk of rock within a very short distance from planet earth, those resources are massively abundant. It's really easy to paint a picture where you can we can actually save Earth and solve some of these these fundamental problems with some investments in space. And then I can also articulate, I think, the way that that Elon would would articulate it, which is, you know, let's let's for the sake of the conversation be a little bit cynical and assume that at nor- most of humanity is going to continue screwing the planet up, and there's a big risk we destroy it. What's our backup plan? What's Plan B? And the only way as a civilization we can live long-term is to be multiplanetary. And the only way you're going to be multiplanetary is to start being multiplanetary. So let's start. We have the means. Let's start. I think those are the two ways I'd look at it. And by the way, there is a bunch of frivolous stuff as well. But there's frivolous stuff in other industries as well that have nothing to do with space. We could use another photo sharing app. Social. I think we need more social media networks, don't you? Yeah, I hear, I hear that the Google Reader, RSS Reader is coming back. <laughs> so Charlie, Elon or Jeff Bezos, who would you rather work for? Oh my gosh. Very different. Man, I I, I, I 
First, I, I have to say that I, I'm, I'm somewhat disappointed with where Blue Origin is uh, because I don't think Jeff has had his eye on that ball. And the dozens of people that I've talked with that are either currently there or previously were there, they paint a picture of a company that is run a lot more like a traditional aerospace company than, a, than an Amazon. And that scares me and kind of bums me out. And, you know, if Jeff wanted to find some, some true, true blooded Amazonians who have the Amazon uh, culture and know how to build the way Amazon and he wanted to bring them into Blue Origin to fix it, hey, call me. I think that would be uh, really interesting because I think it is an asset for humanity that, that that company exists and I want it to be successful and I could make that part of my mission. But right now, it doesn't seem as attractive to me. SpaceX, from what I understand about, about how Gwen and the rest of that organization runs SpaceX is, is Elon, they have a really clean way of of having to be able to participate and and contribute without being in everyone's shorts all the time. Um, and because of that, they're doing unbelievably amazing stuff. Like I get giddy every time I see that they've added a, you know, a new level to the, the launch pad for the, the or the thing that's going to catch the starships when they try and land. Like, and it's just like, they're just throwing stuff out there. That's, and it's not crazy because they thought it through. Uh, but it seems crazy and it's super aggressive. And I love that. I, I think it's what we need and it's exciting. It almost sounds like an Amazon approach uh, to how they're going after space. And I think it's interesting with the Bezos transition where he has said he's going to spend more time at Blue Origin. My gut and bet is that we are going to start to see more of that Amazon style DNA in Blue Origin. Yeah, me too. Just to bring this full circle, the other question to ask along those lines, the analog would be, Satya or Andy, because both Microsoft and Amazon, Amazon themselves are getting into space in specific ways, satellites in particular. I don't think there's a world 10 years from now where the, the current giants, whether it's Apple, Microsoft, Facebook, Samsung, I don't think there's a world where, where space isn't a significant part of their business. And I, I actually, if it is, if they're not investing in it now at a significant level, they're going to be the I don't want to be too pejorative about great brands, but the, you know, the, the Hewlett Packers or the IBMs or the decks of the world that really are no longer relevant at one point were the kings of commerce. Why, why do you feel so strongly about that? Is it because that's the way internet traffic is going to, to travel or what, what's the rationale behind that? I mean, that's a, that's a very interesting and bold statement. I'm curious what you mean by it. I will be the first to admit that I have some confirmation bias here because I've decided to make space my thing. <laughs> um, but as I've read the tea leaves and I've studied the industry and what's going on in it, I do believe that for the first time since humanity has been going to space, we have uh, our eye on commercial, not public ventures that are going to be self-reinforcing and uh, lead to massive amounts of innovation in new businesses that we haven't even considered. Much like back in the 90, early 90s, we didn't imagine search being as powerful as an ad engine or Twitter or Facebook. And those things came about because that fly, that internet flywheel started to spin and it led people to let entrepreneurs to actually having the ability at low cost to go build crazy things. And uh, the, the increased rate of launches, the, the uh, it massively increased rate of reusability, the lowering operational costs, are, those things are all feeding on each other to, to make it so that there's more and more scenarios that are possible. And now entrepreneurs and really smart people are saying, huh, 
I never thought we could do this before, but it's actually a possibility. Let's go try and make it happen. So, Charlie, this week we got to see William Shatner marvel at the view and really the perspective is a better way to put it of Earth from a suborbital view of the Earth. Would you ever want to go to space yourself? Yeah, very much so. Yeah. I think that the state we're at right now feels a little bit too 1930s airplane-ish <laughs> from a risk profile, um, but we're not very far away from the 50s where you know it was a no-brainer for most people to, to want to do it. What did you make of Shatner going up there? And I, mean, I guess to your earlier point in terms of all this innovation and creativity going into the space industry and my comments about maybe it's a bit frivolous. I mean, sending Captain Kirk up into uh, suborbital is maybe about as frivolous as you can get. Well, it, it, it is the beginning of space tourism, which is going to be one of the commercial enterprises that is going to uh, continue to drive the flywheel. It's a bit of a stunt. This was a PR move. And I also got to wonder whether or not they were able to find enough paying customers. Uh, so I had that thought as well. Uh, I think it's awesome that you know it's a, there's a 90-year-old human that has done it, which demonstrate that that it is something that anyone can do. And then being a you know a science fiction fan, like a lot of people, and a fan of Star Trek, I think it's awesome. I think I think I, I think it was it was a great story. Charlie, for folks who don't follow you already, where is the best place to follow you? Start on my blog, um, which is ceklog.kindle.com. Um, and you can get to my Twitter account, my LinkedIn and everything from there. And that's probably the best place to go. Well, Charlie, thank you very much for joining us. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks again, guys. Good seeing you. Talking to you. By the way, to follow Charlie Kindle, that is C-E-K-L-O-G.K-I-N-D-E-L.com. Our podcast producer, Kurt Milton, is off this week, so you can blame me for any audio irregularities. Our theme music is by Daniel L.K. Caldwell. Don't forget to subscribe to GeekWire and give us a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Until next time, I'm Todd Bishop. And I'm John Cook. Thank you for listening to GeekWire.